would you turn now in your Bibles, whether that be electronic or paper, to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Uh, we're going to be reading verses 12 to 28 this morning. So 1 Corinthians chapter 15 beginning at verse 12. Now, if Christ is preached that he has been raised from the dead, how do some among you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then Christ is not risen. And if Christ is not risen, then our preaching is empty and your faith is also empty. Yes, and we have found false witnesses of God Because we have testified of God that he raised up Christ, whom he did not raise up, if, in fact, the dead do not rise. For if the dead do not rise, then Christ is not risen. And if Christ is not risen, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. Then also those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in this life only only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men the most pitiable. But now Christ is risen from the dead and has become the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since by man man came death, by man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ all shall be made alive. But each one in his own order. Christ the first fruits, afterward those who are Christ's at his coming. Then comes the end, when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father when he puts an end to the all rule and all authority and power. For he must reign till he has put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy that will be destroyed is death. For he has put all things under his feet. But when he says all things are put under him, it is evident that he who put all things under him is accepted. Now, when all these things are made subject, now when all things are made subject to him, then the son himself will also be subject to him who put all things under him, that God may be all in all. Amen. And may the Lord bless this reading of his word. Before we come to study this portion of scripture, would you pray with me? Lord God, as we dive now into this glorious passage from 1 Corinthians chapter 15, we pray that we would be taught by your spirit those amazing truths found within, these passage, within this passage. There is life, there is hope, there is certainty in you alone. May we see that all the more clearly this morning and may we establish ourselves and be established by your grace even more upon the finished work of our risen Lord Jesus Christ. We ask this in his name. Amen. So uh, last week we took a little bit of a break from 1 Samuel, the series we'll be working through for uh, until the end of June, uh, to look at the events leading up to the crucifixion. Uh, last week, we, of course, looked at the, uh, that, that last Lord's Supper, the last Passover, and uh, the institution of the Lord's Supper. Uh, this week, we remember that the, the story of, of Christ did not finish at the cross. Now, we were on the way to the cross last week. We knew we were going to the cross. But when Jesus went to the cross... And when he hung there and when he breathed his last, that was not the end. The story continued. Uh, Today we are, of course, looking at the topic of the resurrection. 
And as we look at the resurrection, I really want to encourage you to see the resurrection as something which is not an abstract truth that we hold, hold on to. The resurrection is, is, is huge. I don't think we could have enough adjectives to describe just how, how big and how monumentous the resurrection is. It is to be the, one of the central elements of every Christian's life. Now, today we're looking at the resurrection, and the sermon is titled Resurrection Power, because there is power in the resurrection of Christ. And particularly, we're looking at two points. We're looking at hope and victory. We see the hope that is stirred up in the hearts of every faithful person since the, the death and resurrection of Christ 2,000 years ago. And we see a victory that is still declared and the effects of that victory are still felt today. These things are life-shaping and life-changing events. So to begin with, we, we look at the hope that comes from the resurrection. Now before we look at the hope that comes immediately from the resurrection, consider hope. Now, not in a, a vague, abstract way. If you watched uh, uh, Star Wars Rogue One, the movie, at the end of it, they get the plans for the Death Star. What is it? And the answer is hope, and it sort of fizzles out really badly at the end there because that's a, not a great idea of holding to that sort of hope. It was just poorly delivered. But consider hope. Hope is something that is vital. Hope is something that every single person in this room and outside of this room has. We have a hope in something. There is a degree to which hope underpins everything we do. Think about your travel to work. You hop in the car. You hope that the car is going to start. You hope that the car is going to do what it's meant to do. You hope that the other drivers on the road are going to behave themselves. You hope they'll drive sensibly and not endanger you. You hope that the traffic won't build up, causing you to run late. And if you don't take your car to work, then consider the same things of public transport. You hope that the bus or the train gets you there on time. If you're working from home, you hope that your internet connection, and it's not a great hope, you hope that your internet connection allows you to do the Zoom meeting that you want to do. All of these things, we see hope. You apply for a job. You hope you will succeed in your application. You get a job, you hope that that company doesn't fold and that you can keep your job. There's no area of life that we can look at where we say hope is not present, whether we're a Christian or not a Christian. When you purchase something big or small, there's a hope that it will satisfy the need for which you purchased it. Uh, I, I tease myself about burritos being one of the few meals I can safely cook. When I get that packet of tortillas, I hope that those tortillas don't have any mould in it. But it's surprising the number of times you get to the middle of the packet and there's a mouldy tortilla when you've just opened it up. Well within the years by date. See, we, we hope in all of these things. Some of those hopes are, are small hopes and some of them are big hopes. We could go on and on about the different things we hope for, but to, to save you from an endless rant, I'll stop there. Despite the, the long list of ways in which we hope in one way or another. In each one of those things, I'm sure you're going to find somebody who denies that hope. Somebody who says, no, the traffic is going to be bad. 
Pretty sure the car's going to break down today. Pretty sure the internet's just not going to work. We're not going to hope in that. We find people who deny hope in, in all of these ways. But of course, there is no greater way that one could deny hope than to deny the resurrection of our Lord and Saviour, Jesus Christ. Look at 1 Corinthians 15, verses 12 and 13 with me. Now, if Christ is preached that he has been raised from the dead, how do some, some among you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then Christ is not risen. There are, and there always have been, those who have denied the resurrection of the dead. They claim it to be a myth. They claim that it did not, that it could not, never has and never will happen. Sadly, as Paul writes this letter to the Corinthians, it seems if, at worst, some of those people are are meeting with the gathered Christians. At best, they are influential people who are impacting the believers in Corinth that Paul needs to write to them about this matter. Paul says, you know what? If there is no resurrection, if there is no resurrection, then Christ is still dead. Some people are saying there's no resurrection except for Christ. He alone has been raised from the dead. But Paul tells us here that that argument does not hold water. It doesn't work. Either Christ is resurrection from the dead and there is hope of resurrection for believers too or there is no resurrection of Christ and there is no hope of resurrection for anyone whatsoever. You can't have one or the other. Now, I did say that I wanted this to to see the resurrection as being a a concrete thing in our lives, not, not an abstract thing rather. And it may feel as if we're still dealing with this in the realms of the abstract, of it's something we believe, something we know, but what's the impact daily of this? Verse 14 onwards, it begins to get quite real. And if Christ is not risen, then our preaching is empty and your faith is also empty, fruitless, vacuous. Paul goes on that if if this is a case, that if Christ is not risen, then... He has been a liar. By extension, myself and every other minister who has ever said that Christ is raised from the dead is a liar. Every Christian who has said that Christ is raised from the dead is a liar. We would be sitting here right now, believing a lie and perpetuating a lie every single time we mention our Lord who is risen from the dead. Our faith, which is the, the vehicle that God uses, uses to drive us into eternal glory, which 1 Peter chapter 1 explains that beautifully. Have a look at that to, to see more of that. Uh, faith is a vehicle concept. If Jesus has not risen, our faith is vacuous, it's empty, it's fruitless, it is nothing. If Christ did not rise from the dead, the dead do not rise either. Perhaps that still feels abstract. But I would say that should not be an abstract thought. I don't think that Paul saying your faith is empty can ever be read as abstract. Abstract. 
Because if your faith is empty, your faith is empty if Christ did not rise from the dead, that faith shapes every single thing that we do. Every single decision that we make as Christians is supposed to be based upon the confidence, the hope, the certainty that we have in our risen Lord and Saviour, Jesus Christ. We go on into verse 17 to see the further impacts of this hypothetical, which it is a hypothetical. Paul is not saying Christ did not rise. He's dealing with the hypothetical put forward. Dealing with this hypothetical of if Christ did not rise. If Christ did not rise from the dead, you are still in sin. If Christ did not rise from the dead, then each one of us is still facing eternal condemnation for our sin. And we know that no matter how hard we work, no matter how much effort we put in, we have no hope of salvation on our own. We needed somebody to save us. That is a soul-crushing thought if the resurrection is not true. We have no hope. We don't even have the smallest grain of hope. There is no light at the end of the tunnel. There is nothing for us to hold on to in life if Christ did not rise from the dead, if Christ stayed dead. Now, some, of course, ask the question here, but didn't Christ's death pay the price of sin? I've said that from this pulpit. Admittedly, the pulpit was back there when I said it. Others have said it from this pulpit. Countless Christians and ministers, Christians have said that Christ's death on the cross is sufficient payment for the sins of all mankind. So maybe this concept of the significance of the resurrection is becoming convoluted. If it is, then John Calvin very helps Calvin very helpfully uh, addresses this for us. He outlines that if Christ's resurrection had not happened, he would not have, Calvin says, come off victorious. Hence, if the resurrection is overthrown, the dominion of sin is set up anew. The price was paid once, but if Christ is not risen, and it's efficient for only a short time, his death on the cross to pay for the sins of mankind. Paul is dealing with the hypotheticals here. Paul rightly says that if this were the case, all mankind would be pitiable, but the Christians would be more pitiable than anyone else if Christ did not come back from the dead. Those Christians who have already perished professing faith in Christ, would have died under the crushing weight of unpardoned sin. If the one hope we have, the one thing that we are willing to give up all else to believe and hold to and have as a central element of our lives, Jesus Christ, his finished work on the cross, his death and resurrection then we, if that's not true, then we have nothing and we are pitiable. More than anyone else. See, Paul wants us to be confronted with how terrible things would be without the resurrected Lord. Paul wants us to realise the futility of life apart from Christ. Paul wants us to be challenged by this. 
Paul wants us to think about this. And as we think about it, praise God that we have credible eyewitnesses who saw our risen Lord. Praise God that we have historical evidences that point us towards the reality of his death and also his resurrection. Uh, Josephus is a historian who, who worked for the Romans not long after Jesus' death and resurrection. He himself claimed the reality of the resurrection of Christ. He did not see Christ, but he himself recorded the reality of it. Uh, a few years ago, very recently, um, secular historians tried to discredit Josephus's body of works, particularly in relation to this topic, the, the, the person of Christ. But they couldn't. They couldn't. Every rebuttal they brought to bear on Josephus's work could not hold water because Christ did rise from the dead. The proof is in the pages of history. The proof is in the pages of Scripture, God's recorded word for us. God who is truthful. God who is honourable. God who does not deceive tells us of the risen Lord. Christ did rise. Christ is and Christ always will be our hope. In the resurrection of Christ, we have hope. It cannot be denied and it should not be doubted. The hope of the resurrection is sure. Uh, secondly, is our, also our final point this morning, a two-point sermon. Uh, we move into looking at the, the victory that was won. Now, as we do move into to, uh, seeing the victory of the resurrection, we have to remember that we look at this with that establishment of hope clearly there. Paul amazingly introduces us to this idea of hope. There is something worth hoping for and there is something worth hoping in with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And when we have something to hope in, when we see the certainty of that hope, it becomes a lot easier to take those next steps, doesn't it? To keep going in the face of adversity. Whether that be, again, all those different things we hope in, whether it be cars, public transport, the oven turning on, the kettle working, any of these things, but on a far greater scale, hope of freedom from sins in Christ, we have confidence to look at his victory that was won and assured. And that hope, of course, comes with certain evidences that when it says absolute, that's the work that Christ did. Christ was not only raised from the dead, but we read as we go on in 1 Corinthians that Christ was the, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep, which is a, a nice way of saying those who had died. Now, given the, the context of this, we need to remember Christ is not the first fruits of everyone who died. Christ is the first fruits of those who died trusting God. That is a context set up in the earlier verses we read this morning. It is hope of victory for those who have fallen asleep trusting in Christ. It is those who Christ is the first fruit of. And as you remember, last week we looked at the Passover. This whole concept ties in incredibly well with the, the Passover that would have taken place this time last week, a few thousand years ago. And what you might not realise is that with the, the Passover, maybe you do realise this, I'm going to tell you anyway. You can't really stop me at the moment. So when it comes to, to the Passover, 
The, the Passover meal was remembered. And then there was the Sabbath day where they rested and didn't do anything. A day after the Sabbath following the Passover was a day where the fruit offerings were made. Instant Christ is both the Passover lamb and the first fruit, isn't it? If Christ is the first fruit, then he is the, the offering made to God once more, which we, we know. Now, what we might not realise with the offering of the first fruits is when the Israelites were instructed to bring that first fruit offering, they were to not harvest any other crops until after that first fruit had been offered to God. It was to be presented to God first. After it was presented, then the other crops from the harvest could be, could be brought in. And in Hebrew, the, the word for first fruit is a, is a bikurim, which means promise to come. Promise to come. Well, I see where this is going, but how amazing is it so much completion of the Old Testament in the person and work of Christ? How can we deny that he is just that he is God? How can we say he is just a man? There is so much richness to his person and his work. Christ is the first fruit of the harvest. And now that he has been resurrected as that first fruit, then others of the harvest can likewise come to enjoy that resurrection too. Those who, who fell asleep trusting God for salvation, those who, who died in this earth trusting God for salvation will be raised. Now, as we look at this, we see some more wonderful things about the work of Christ coming through here. All men died because of Adam. Because of one man, because of Adam, death entered into this world that God created perfect. And if a man did that work as representative of the human race, then another man needed to do something different to act as another federal figurehead for us. All men are affected by death because of Adam. We need another man to undo that work that, that, that plunged us into sin and death. All who stay under Adam's headship will die with no hope of the resurrection. But those who find shelter in Christ and his rule and his reign and his glorious resurrection will be made alive. And we will receive the resurrection, each according to his own order, we're told in this passage. In the Greek, it's literally each in his own regiment. Very structured society. There is an order about which this will be done. And in that order, there will be no one overlooked. Just as we read in our call to worship today, God doesn't reject, overlook, or neglect his inheritance. All who trust in him will be saved. All who trust in him will be brought back to life, this time eternal life, free from the taint of sin and death. Of course, there are, there are those who are not saved. There are those who continue to deny the resurrection of the risen Lord. For those who find themselves in that boat reading this, this is not a message of life and hope if you find yourself in that camp. 
This is a challenging, this is a a deeply confronting thing. We pray that the Spirit might, might move any who find themselves not yet convicted of that need of salvation in Christ. But what a glorious thing, the victory won by Christ. Mankind has been fighting against sin ever since we were plunged into sin. No man could even save themselves, but in Christ we have the hope of resurrection for for all those who trust in him. He didn't just win that resurrection for himself, he won it for, for all those who trust in him. This is a tremendous victory. It's an enormous victory. Because he died, because he was then raised back to life, he reigns. Because of this and so many other reasons, we have no more condemnation as believers. There is a victory to be found in the work that Christ has done. That we will share in the resurrection. And we will share in the resurrection because he reigns. Because he is set above all other things. We see Corinthians talk about a time where he will deliver the kingdom to God the Father. But he strips away all other rule all other authority and all other power because none can reign while he is seated on the throne. This victory of the resurrection is one which isn't just one declared 2,000 years ago as we read in 2 Peter. It's a continued declaration of the victory of Christ, a continued declaration that he was raised from the dead and that he will even defeat the last enemy, the final enemy, death. That thing that scares us at times. The thing that causes so many terrors of the end of this life as we know it. Even that victory, even death will be defeated. That victory is not fully recognised just yet. But it's been accomplished Many ask at this point how a victory can be won but not fully recognised. If you're asking, that's a great question. Consider the the end of World War II. There were a number of very significant events that took place over uh, the final, the the, the closing months of World War II. In May, May the 8th, 1944, the Allied forces won the victory in Europe when Germany was finally defeated. Even the months leading up to that, the victory had been won, but it wasn't fully recognised until the 8th of May, 1944. And you think, maybe that's the the end of the war. Not quite. Germany was defeated. There was victory in Europe, known as VE Day, May 8th, 1944. But the victory was not fully realised until Japan was defeated on August the 14th, May to August... August the 14th, 1945, three months later. Those two different days are known as VE Day, Victory in Europe Day, and VJ Day, uh, Victory in Japan Day. Effectively achieved months before they were fully realised. In a lot of ways, it's just like that with Christ's uh, Christ's victory over death. He will claim 
and he will have his victory over death proclaimed. It is not a questionable matter. It's more of a sure thing than even those last few months of World War II in both Europe and, and the fighting in Japan. The victory has been won. The battle has been won. The war is won. All enemies will be put under Christ's feet. And the last enemy, death, will be... Note the word there? Not defeated. Destroyed. Death will be destroyed. The only one who will not be placed under the rule of Christ is God the Father because he is the one who gave this ultimate, this final victory to the Son. And when all things come under his feet, that work will be completed. The outcome being that God may be in all things. Yeah, and there's a, a lot of confusion. A few years ago, there was a lot of debate over the, the submission of Christ to the Father. Is there not one divine will shared by the three persons of the triune Godhead? There is. Uh, what's happening in verse 28 is simply a description that his, that is Christ's kingdom, uh, will merge in the Father's uh, with whom he is one. In this, there is not any removal or any degradation of the honour of Christ. God himself wills that all should honour the Son as they honour the Father. We read that in John chapter 5, verses 22 to 23, that all should honour the Son as they honour the Father. You see, when it, when it comes to the resurrection, we have such a hope and such a victory to hold on to there. Perhaps we see this as something which just happened 2,000 years ago. I'd encourage you to not. This is an event that, that happened that was so significant that as we think back to the children's talk, the ripples through that pond are even more significant than the rogue wave. And where the rogue wave is just effective for a, a short space and for a short time, the, the rogue wave, which is the hope and the victory that carries with it all those who trust in our risen Lord, continues forever. The resurrection is not something which we should limit in our minds to the dusty Palestinian streets Christ walked 2,000 years ago. It is not just for one ethnic group. It is something so complete. It is something so comprehensive that it should change, and it does change for the believer, everything about us. We have freedom from sin, everlasting life because death has been defeated. We don't get to it yet, but we get new bodies, which Paul talks about soon, which after this week I'm really looking forward to. We have a Lord who reigns forever. Think back to the start of the sermon about how everything we do has some element of hope attached to it. What we have in Christ goes well beyond any hope we have in a car. A relative of ours recently got a new car and they were showing us all of the safety features. Yeah, the automatic cruise control, which adjusts its speed so you don't 
rear end someone else if you're on cruise control. It stops the car for you. And it's got all the fancy reverse sensors, but you still gotta hope the engineer and the mechanics who put it together knew what they were doing. I know engineers are very trustworthy, but you still gotta hope there's a human element to be found within there. You still hope it works out. See, what we have with the risen Lord, with the resurrection of Christ, is, is far better than that. We continue to hope in it. But we continue to hope with absolute certainty. We hope because we haven't seen for ourselves our resurrected Lord. But we have a faith. And faith is hope in things not seen. And that faith has been given to us by God. This is ours to hold on to. The hope, the victory that Christ won weren't just for himself, but for all those who follow after him. For all those who the Father calls to himself. We should live boldly for him. We should and we, not just can, but we should and ought to live confidently in his grace. We, we face trials, we face struggles, we face challenges of, of all sorts of kinds. But because of what we have here, we face every day with a spirit that is not timid or not intimidated and not cowed in the face of opposition, but but hopeful no matter what we face. We are not to be daunted because we hope in the one who is bigger than all of our battles and bigger than all of our struggles and who has won the, the greatest victory we could ever imagine. We, we don't have this hope and we don't have this victory because of us. We have it because of Christ, because he was risen, because he reigns, because he won This is the the resurrection power that we are called to remember in everything that we do. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for such a wonderful confidence we have in the resurrection. We thank you for the reality of it. We thank you that Christ did not remain in the grave, but that he rose again that the dominion of sin cannot be established in you because your work is so complete and so absolute and so authoritative in all of its being. Lord God, we thank you that you have called us to live in this confidence. We thank you that you have saved us by your grace, that you died on that cruel cross in our place that we might have life eternal. May we remember you in all that we do. May we confidently find ways to tell others of how how amazing and how wonderful and how glorious you are and of the certainty we have with you and that they too might have with you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.